Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This week on Truth and Movies... Emily Blunt stars in Mary Poppins Returns. Is it practically perfect in every way, or is it something quite atrocious? Nice to see you, Jack. Good to see you too, Mary Poppins. Then we end 2018 with The Little White Lies Top 10 Films of the Year. Did Venom make the cut? Find out shortly in Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. So here it is, Truth and Movies. Michael Leader here in the host chair, sitting across from Little White Lies Commander-in-Chief David Jenkins. Hey, hey. And Associate Editor Hannah Woodhead. Hi, Hannah. Hi. How are we all doing today? End of the year, we're winding down. It feels like we're doing some sort of acoustic set right now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's nice, other. it's nice. Before we kick off, first we have a letter from Matt. Hi, guys. First of all, I love the podcast. I really enjoy the variety of great guests you invite. I appreciate how much enthusiasm and knowledge everyone brings. I'm writing in because I watched The Green Ray for the first time this week and was a bit knocked out by it. And afterwards, something in my head made me think it had previously been a film club selection. However, I've looked through previous episodes and can't seem to find anything, so I must be making it up. Maybe I read something about it in the magazine slash on the site before. So on the, the assumption that I have made it up, I wondered if it would be a good suggestion for Film Club at some point, if it ever seemed appropriate. I can't really explain my thoughts on it very well, but the anxious emotional rut, for want of a better term, that Delphine is in, and the way the film shows it is different to anything I've ever seen in a film, and it really chimed with me. The Green Ray, that's Eric Roma film, French movie. David, that's a personal favourite, isn't it? I mean, yeah, it's sort of like, oh, there are certain days when I would say it's like my favourite film of all time. I mean... Yeah, it's it's one that I've seen many times. Yeah, sadly we haven't done it on the pod, but um, I do try and find any excuse I can to sort of rattle on about how great it is. I mean, it's, it is the story of a woman who can't decide where she wants to go on holiday. And I mean, that sounds like it could be the worst thing ever, but mm-hmm. actually it's the best thing ever. <laughs> Well, yes, and Matt also recommends Babylon, the Franco Rosso movie, and Hal Ashby's Being There for Film Club. If any listeners want to send in some more suggestions for Film Club, they can do so. Um, we are on Twitter at, at Truth and Movies, um, Truth and Movies at TCOLondon.com via email, and there's a comments section on the website at ldvlies.com slash podcast. I tell you what, I, it'd be great, yeah, if, if pe- loads of people got in touch with, with ideas for Film Club for 2019, mm-hmm. and like... What would, he, what would be even greater is if, if there was some <laughs> link between the films, you know, that we're going to be covering on, on the pod. So mm-hmm. looking at some of the upcoming releases and think and maybe trying to make some kind of connections between... Basically, if you could just do our job for us, that would be amazing. Good tie-in programming. <laughs> Have a look at the release calendars. Yes. <laughs> see what comes Get up. Get on launching launchingfilms.co.uk. <laughs> <laughs> 
It's public service. <laughs> it's public service. It's always nicer when someone recommends a film to us that we may may have not made an association with. Mm-hmm. You know, get the listeners involved. It takes the pressure off having to pick it ourselves and then find out. We have our biases as well and our blind spots. There's a few yeah. we've picked this year that are, that you think in advance, oh, they're good, they're good aren't they? And then you rewatch them and it's like, oh, mm-hmm. oops. <laughs> <laughs> Too late to pull the old uh, ripcord on that one, you know. So. Yeah. So let us know, listeners, what your recommendations for 2019's film club selections are. Let's get back to 2018's films, though. And before the year ends, we have one massive movie to cover, and that is Mary Poppins Returns. You need to be more careful when the wind rises, George. You nearly lost your kite. And you, too, nearly lost your Georgie. You might have got away completely had I not been holding on to the other end of that string. The... My goodness, Annabelle. What have you done to your clothes? You could grow a garden in that much soil, and John... Yes, just as filthy. How do you know our names? Because she's Mary Poppins, of course. May I say you look lovely as always? Do you really think so? Nice to see you, Jack. Good to see you too, Mary Poppins. So time has passed since Mary Poppins brought a spoonful of sugar into the Banks household. Michael and Jane are now grown up and are played by Ben Whishaw and Emily Mortimer, and they're facing troubles of their own, not least the looming threat of the bank repossessing their home. Sounds like they need some all-singing, all-dancing, part-animated help from the perfect nanny. Emily Blunt in this case. So, Hannah, this is quite a belated sequel, one of the most belated. Just a bit, yeah. Were we excited for this? Did well, we need this film? I'm not really a fan of the original. I, oh, really? Um, my family don't really do films, so I guess I came to it probably too late to be like enthralled by it. So this, for me, I was just like, yeah, sure, whatever. I like Emily Blunt, so... Mm-hmm. We'll see. Uh, no Star Wars this year, which is what I wait for every There's year. There's a big gas in <laughs> so the calendar, isn't there? There was, yeah. there was something Disney had to do, and, and I guess this was it. Um, but no, I think anticipation generally has been quite high. You know, Mary Poppins is one of those archetypal, a lot of people, young and old, hold it very dear to their hearts. So I think there's many people very invested in this film and want this film to be good. Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be bad. <laughs> I never want a film to be bad, but I was just kind of a bit more lowered my expectations accordingly if you weren't a mary poppins fan going into this were you a rob marshall chicago you know i'm a, the woods fan i am a massive chicago fan like in fact as soon as his name kind of flashed up at the beginning of the film i was like i must watch chicago again that film is like amazing apart from that i'm not really a rob marshall fan i think what he does he does very well mm-hmm. and also like, if you think about the fact that he like helped to choreograph mary poppins i'm like this guy's really must be like earning his paycheck on these movies but yeah it it does kind of feel like the big sort of like okay it's christmas eve we've got like a couple of hours let's let's take the family out to the cinema you know you can take everyone take your grand take the kids it's that kind of like all-rounder it is positioned as the family's one christmas trip to the cinema yeah it is yeah david will you be taking the little ones (laughs) no i'll be i'll be keeping him in the cellar this year I differ from Hannah slightly in that I, my anticipation for this film was, was actually quite high. It was one that... I think it was a film that I ended up watching lots as a child just because it was one of the couple that we had, like, taped off TV. It, you know, it was after Back to the Future on the tape, so we mm. just ended up watching it a lot. And I've sort of grown quite fond of it over the years. I rewatched it very recently and, and, and as a sort of nostalgia thing, and I thought, like, most of it was amazing. But there were a few bits that I thought... It feels a bit kind of bitty and, you know, 
threadbare in terms of like uh, having a, a kind of compelling story. It's, mm. it's essentially more of a kind of using that musical template of just stringing together quite loosely some a bunch of sort of set pieces, I guess. And with this new one, I mean, you refer to it as a sequel, and like, I mean, it is a sequel in that it revisits the characters down the line in this kind of very strange way that where the characters have aged but the landscape hasn't aged uh-huh. so it's we're still all like you know apples and pears cockneys uh, in the london fog it it has that feel of of kind of interwar period mm-hmm. you know park keepers shaking their fists at kiddies running over the grass and stuff <laughs> like that um and it's just strange that like this opportunity of putting mary poppins into a new social context has has been rejected in favour of having her basically do the same old thing. And I think the film, in that sense, does feel like they couldn't decide whether they wanted to do do a remake or a sequel. Mm -hmm. And so they kind of fused the two together and you have this kind of weird, amorphous, desperate attempts to pay homage to what we loved about the original, but not, like, just too scared to actually do anything new with it. Um, Mm -hmm. I was really disappointed. I was just like... (laughs) I I was really excited about seeing this film and I was sat there and... I was just waiting for that one moment where I could be like, okay, yeah, you you got me, you know, like just one thing I wanted and it just didn't give it to me. I just thought the songs, every single song was awful, completely unmemorable. I was waiting for some fun lyrics or something that I could be whistling along to. I mean, every song in the original is an absolute toe-tapping masterpiece, you know? I think David's been a bit harsh on the songs. Oh, I, I didn't mind the them. songs were so... He's clearly been hurt by this film. He's, he has. I, I didn't realise how personally David was taking this. <laughs> so Lin-Manuel Miranda, who's kind of the big um, musical guy in mm-hmm. the States, he, uh, he did Hamilton. And the song, I think he helped write the songs for Moana. So this is very mm. much his wheelhouse. And he stars in his first, like big role as uh, Jack the Lamplighter (laughs) doing an awful kind of Dick Van Dyke Cockney accent and he has this one song where he 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 does it with Emily Blunt at this kind of like music hall review and um, he gets to do his like rapping in it which I I love that I was like I thought that was amazing (laughs) I can judge from the expressions on both your faces like Anna no I will will concede on that actually (laughs) that was probably the most fun bit musically when he was like doing his kind of weird Music like, hall rap. Yeah, music hall rap. <laughs> but that was great because you the whole song is very... All the songs are so long. They go on for so, so long. By the point they kind of get to the big cool bit, you've given up because you're like, okay, well, this is like five minutes of my time. Mm-hmm. And his later song, the kind of like... <laughs> what's it called? Something, something, something light fantastic. Trip a little Trip light fantastic. Light I hated fantastic. that song. Well, they're doing like BMX riding. <laughs> yeah, so they're, they're, they're all, all the lamplighters have got like tricked out BMXs and they're like doing like wheelies on them. And it's like, it's so, oh my God. It's an like, odd anachronism it's, to throw in if you're not going to throw yeah, in more. It's, it's true. It's true. It's like BMX bandits <laughs> meets, you know, Victorian London. But the the song that Emily Blunt and um, Lin-Manuel Miranda sing is very, it's very Chicago, actually. She's wearing mm. a, like a Velma Kelly wig. Yeah. And quite risque, actually, for a children's film. The lyrics are a bit like, you're like, oh, okay. I wasn't expecting that for a PG film. But that, I was like, okay, this is good. I like this. And then it just kind of 
doesn't maintain any of that energy it all kind of goes back to being like oh my wife is dead and I can't care for the children that's, that's, that's Ben Whishaw's character, character yeah. who's, the, who's the, the grown up Michael from the original film so 20 yeah. years have passed but not much has changed <laughs> David you mentioned how the original is very bitty very episodic mm-hmm. ties together a bunch of songs the one thing that is the through line is Julie Andrews performance as Mary Poppins Emily Blunt is taking on this iconic role here how does she fare David Mm. Oh no, really? Yeah, I mean, like I was watching her, it felt very <laughs> self-consciously like she was performing. Whereas I think Julie Andrews, just she kind of embodies the role. It feels very naturalistic and like she makes this quite strange character who flips between this quite harsh domestic goddess and a, and a bit of a kind of eyebrow-flapping lovebird mm-hmm. kind of character. Um And she's got an incredible singing voice as well. I found Emily Blunt was more trying to be Julie Andrews than she was trying to sort of take ownership of the character herself. And and it was it was all very, very self-conscious performing. It it felt like I was seeing a filmed theatre production, maybe Mm -hmm. like or a panto version of of Mary Poppins. (laughs) I know that's really brutal. And I I genuinely I think Emily Blunt is great. Mm -hmm. But this, this was just too much for a role like that. You needed someone who has like that kind of song and dance stage experience to really make it sizzle. I think that I quite like Emily Blunt. So I think for the first few times she comes on screen, there's a bit of joy that I had seeing Mm. her assume a role that clearly she is equipped to perform. The film forgets about Mary Poppins as she goes on. It's a dilemma at the heart of the film where Mary Poppins is a passive role in these lives, doing all of the housework and bathing the kids, but actually changing everything by doing that. And Emily Blunt, therefore, is, I think, forgotten as as she goes on. I think she's such a terrific actress, maybe better in her genre films, like A Quiet Place at the beginning of this year, Sicario and Edge of Tomorrow before that. But this is her big performance. Did it work for you, Hannah? I love Emily Blunt. I'll quite happily watch her do anything. But I think she's the best kind of Mary Poppins we could have got. I can't... If you ask me to name an actress who could have done this beside her, I couldn't really think of anyone. No. Um, but I think, yeah, like David said, the kind of theatre background is something you need for a role like that. And again, I, I hate to keep going on about uh, Lynn, <laughs> but, but he comes from a theatre background and that's why it works, because he kind of knows how to hustle. And I think sometimes in the film, Emily Blunt's kind of like push to the back it's hard to kind of fight your way through and the kids in this are so annoying as well mm-hmm. but they are kind of like those stage children they're like mother father and it's like these kids are clearly theater kids these are west end kids i will give a shout out to ben wishaw though i think one of the things that really charmed me about this is you have um colin firth playing the kind of like mustachio twirling villain and then ben wishaw and it's like oh Colin Firth was going to play Paddington. Ben Whishaw is Paddington, and now they're kind of like facing off mm-hmm. in, this, in this. But you mentioned the Peruvian bear in the room, which is how do you make a <laughs> storybook family movie based in London after the Paddington movies this have excelled in we that really format? We really did peak. I mean, cinema peaked, I think, in general with Paddington too. This but is that's not Paddington. This is what <laughs> oh, I'm going to refer to this film as just not Paddington. <laughs> but that's the thing. I think Paddington. And Paddington 2 kind of really took the source material and made it their own. Mm-hmm. And we're like, okay, we, re- we recognise we can never kind of be that, but we can stay true to the spirit of it. And I don't even think this kind of stays true to the spirit of Mary Poppins. I think it just, it is like Poppins 2 back in the habit to steal a phrase from Vulture. <laughs> like right. it's, it's just repeating what happened in the first one, you know. It's, mm-hmm. And I think that's what's disappointing is that I was kind of expecting a new spin on things and it isn't that at all. It's just like show up and play the hits, like. 
Well, you know. Fortunately, we have 10 more films that I think we all <laughs> like coming up, but let's put Mary Poppins to bed. Uh, David, I'll come to you first for your in anticipation, enjoyments, and in retrospect scores. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say um, my anticipation was probably a, a high four. I had a little bit of trepidation, but generally, you know, Poppins original is is one I, I like a lot, and uh, and yeah, probably like a twos. I mean, it was kind of just about past the time, but there was there was just things I didn't like about in every aspect of it. Really bad special effects, not interesting performances, terrible, terrible songs. The story itself was just so lame. This absolute wisp afterthought thing that just doesn't even need to be there so no mary bobbins <laughs> hannah it's like threes across the board i don't really have anything to say about this film mm-hmm. I, I won't be seeing it again i won't be taking my family to watch this film we're gonna go and watch spider-man again because that's more of our christmas street than, the, than this returning into the spider-verse it's every yeah. opportunity yeah for me <laughs> it's... i'm taking my family to see an elephant sit still Chinese <laughs> it's a good way to spend that. all of Christmas Day. I'd say this May Poppins Returns is a 3-2-2 for me. I will shout out Sandy Powell's costume design. Oh, yeah. This year she's worked wonders for women in suits. I concur on that. And we'll be talking about her again in a week or two, no doubt, for The Favourite. Up next, we've made a list. We've checked it twice. We're going to find out what films are in the Little White Lies top ten of the year. So we've all seen... Some films this year, and the White Lies put together the top ten best. David, do we need to do any housekeeping in terms of what films qualified, what disqualified films? These were all seen this year by the editorial team of the White Lies. Yeah, we we haven't gone strict 2018 calendar year. We've gone from the, I guess you, you'd call it the sort of awards and festival year, which kind of runs from. March to March. Mm-hmm. So there are a couple of films in our top 10 which have yet to come out in the UK, although they have been released in many venues across the world. You saw them maybe at the Cannes, maybe in Toronto, Venice, yeah. etc. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They've played festivals, so they have, they have been seen quite widely. But um, when you're doing these lists, it's nice to have some sort of anticipatory element to them as well. Like, you know, we, we want to be able to sort of look back and look forward a little bit. So mm-hmm. hopefully there's a couple in here that people will kind of earmark as, as kind of must-sees for the new year. Mm-hmm. Um, the films that we have picked for 20, that are released in the UK in 2019 are coming out like, you know, by February. So it's not, not that long to wait for them. Okay. So I'll put on my best David Kidd Jensen voice. Actually, no, I'll, I'll, I'll spare you all that. <laughs> and let's start with number 10, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. That is uh, the conversion camp therapy comedy drama drama from earlier this year. Hannah, this is one of your favourites of the year? Yeah, yeah, no, I love this film. I think Little White Lies very clearly loved it because we did a whole issue on it. <laughs> I saw it, gosh, like June time. That feels like a lifetime ago. That was like 100 movies ago. But this is one that has really kind of stuck with me. And um, I think Desiree Akhavan is like one of the kind of most talented filmmakers working she's out there. She's had a great year as well, between this and the bisexual on Channel 4 as well. She's yeah. unstoppable. I think she's one in a couple of years is going to be like directing big billion dollar projects if that's what she wants to do. You know, I mean, it strikes me that she wants to do what mm. she wants to do and she's she's going to do it, bless her. Um, but no, I mean, this film feels so kind of intimate and special and it speaks to something that is still such a prevalent issue in across the world, not even just in the United States, but does it in a kind of very 
non-judgmental way it is rightly so it's very like critical of the conversion therapy process but it's not like about that in the way that boy erased which is the big other mm. conversion therapy drama that's hitting cinemas early next year this um in the uk this is completely about cameron post the titular character and her journey and her, her kind of understanding of her own sexuality but also the process that she's going through and how she kind of like changes her view throughout the film at the start of the film I think she's very kind of open to the idea that yeah maybe maybe I could change you know how I feel about women and by the end of it you know it changes completely and I think it's very refreshing to watch a film like this that is so free and open with its emotions Mm -hmm. and it has this real like spark of life to it that I was very on board for it's weird because when I first saw it I was kind of like oh, I mean, I like this film, but I don't really see how we can make a magazine about it. And I saw it again, and it was like, oh, okay, I get it now. And I've seen it again since then, and I get it even more now. I think for me it's a real, like, grower, this one. It gets its claws into you and doesn't leave. One to watch and rewatch. Yeah. David, were you a fan of this one? We did cover this on the podcast, but I don't think either of you were on the episode. A big fan. Yeah, Yeah, no, uh, I'd only seen her previous film, appropriate behavior a few months prior to this one coming out and i and became really excited to catch the new one and yeah i echo everything hannah mm-hmm. says i think um one of the things i i think that's great about it is just it's just its tone mm. it's very unsentimental it's funny without being glib and it's it also has this kind of quite melancholy quite exasperated air to it where the karen post character she's sort of like I can't believe this is happening. Like, you know, I, I'm sort of going through this system where I'm ha- I'm being told that I'm, you know, I've got this kind of, you know, a disease that needs to be cured. And it's like, I can't believe that no one here sees how absurd this is and are kind of carrying on with it. And the kids involved are largely ignore it, you know. Um, it's just one of those films where all the kind of little elements work together. It's I think a lot of people have maybe dismissed it as quite a small film mm-hmm. and quite maybe like too intimate and too sort of small scale but while it's quite hushed in that sense it's I think it talks about big things and I think there is a there's also a theory that it's a remake of the Texas Chainsaw Massacre what <laughs> this is Jenkins theory. this is your theory right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. yeah yeah I, I think it is the final shot is them sort of on the back of a pickup truck and that the comparisons escaping, end there? Or escaping. There? <laughs> well, you know, this, it's the story of, like, kids going into this uh, house run by crazies in the, in the south. Cra- and it's a crazy family. Yeah, okay. yeah. John Gallagher Jr. looks just like Leatherface. You yeah. Know? <laughs> John Gallagher Jr., how they take that he's, back. He's a lovely man. I interviewed him. He's, he's an angel. So I, I'm sorry, John. <laughs> that is a great comparisons make David <laughs> well that's the miseducation of Cameron Post number nine in the top ten is one of those films as we mentioned earlier that doesn't come out in cinemas till early next year but had a great uh, first airing at Cannes earlier this year it's Lee Chang Dong's Burning Korean movie David you saw this in Cannes yeah and uh, it's really great it's really something and I think a lot of people have been talking about this it's already made the sort of upper echelons of many sort of best of lists this year already. Uh, it's a South yeah, South Korean film by director Lee Chang-dong. He hasn't made a film since 2010. Uh, he made a film called Poetry, which was similarly great, but I think he's not someone who's just, like, pumping out a film, like, every other year. He You know, he, he lets lets these things cook and simmer, and, you know, he obviously wants to kind of get it right. And 
it's a hard film to describe because mm-hmm. it's it's essentially a, a it's very Hitchcockian. It's a guy who is this kind of weird loser who mm-hmm. falls in with this young girl and can't believe his luck. And then when he thinks that he's in with her, she sort of drifts off to this other guy who's played by Stephen uh, Young. Stephen Young, yeah. yeah, who who is this kind of like weird neo yuppie who drives around in a in a Porsche and uh, there is this kind of like it's almost like a kind of class war with this girl in the middle but then there is another twist which turns it into something completely different it's um adapted from a murakami short that was uh, published in the new yorker quite liberally adapted i think because it was a it's a it's a very short story and i think lee chang dong has it kind of extended it out it's a long film it's over two hours but it, it's it's one that like you just you definitely put a few hours aside after you've seen it because it's it's one that you're going to need to talk about. Mm-hmm. There are there are just details in it that you you know you can't blink in this movie because you'll miss something. Mm-hmm. And 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 every single shot has something in it which kind of connects to this central three-way drama. It's a slow slow burn, but by the end it's like white hot. So, <laughs> sorry, you can't use that as a poster quote. Slow burning. No, no. So, I can't wait to watch that film again. Uh, that that's out early next year. Number eight in the top ten is "You Were Never Really Here." Joaquin Phoenix as a hammer bro in uh, Lynn Ramsey's Hammer Bro. Uh, it's, a, it's a Super Mario Brothers reference. Oh, okay. so, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Lynn Ramsey's crime thriller, Hannah, were you a fan of this one? I think this was actually in your <laughs> 2017 best of. Let's yeah, go, I, it? I like to get in there a year ahead of the curve. Yeah, God, this is one of my favourites. If, if I was doing my list again, it would probably still be number one, that and Phantom Thread. Speaking of filmmakers who take their time with things, Lynn Ramsey, I, I mean, her last film was We Need to Talk About Kevin, which was, God, 2012, maybe, mm-hmm. 2011. So, yeah, she's another one who kind of takes her time, has about 10 projects in the works. They all get cancelled, and then she'll just come out with something like this, which is, like, a barnstormer. Mm-hmm. 87 Minutes of Pure Adrenaline, starring Joaquin Phoenix. And it's one of the kind of most unforgettable films I've seen, well, I was going to say this year. I have seen it twice again this year, but it's hard for a film about an assassin to be as kind of emotional and beautiful as this film is. And all the elements like work so well together. You've got the Johnny Greenwood score. You've got, Mm. you know, Lynn's direction, which is just, I, you know, I get emotional just thinking about this film. There's a scene where uh, Joaquin Phoenix kind of like, he does a Ophelia and puts stones in his pockets and tries to drown himself. And they shot the whole thing underwater. And like hearing, uh, Joaquin talk about Lynn sh- like getting in the water to shoot that with him it's like it, it just everything I learned about this film makes me like it more it makes me understand kind of how she works as a director and how a film like this only comes from having a team on board who understand every single element and I just I feel like I could talk about this until the cows come home and, and uh, maybe <laughs> never get to the heart of what I love about it I think it's it just grabs you. There's something in it and it might be wacky and it might be the score and any element of it, I think, is just so visceral. You stop breathing when it starts and you don't kind of take a breath until it finishes. It's, you know, it's like a raw nerve, this film. A raw nerve of a movie. <laughs> I think because that came out quite early this year, it's already streaming. So maybe many yeah. of the listeners have seen it's out this. out on DVD, yeah. Fantastic. Let us know what you think about that Perfect one. Christmas viewing right there. Perhaps not. <laughs> After dark, the <laughs> kiddies have gone to bed. <laughs> so, David, number seven, 
we talked about this actually very recently on the podcast. It's The Wild Pear Tree by Nurobilga Jalan. The top line thoughts on that one. It feels very recent, very fresh for us. Yeah, yeah. It's um, the latest from this, you know, maybe Turkey's greatest director, current living director, I would say. It's a kind of homecoming drama about a guy who, uh, yeah, a sort of student who has written a book about his uh, Turkish village in Anatolia and he wants to uh, get it published. And it's, it's essentially a three-hour kind of amble through the various echelons of his of, of the local government and and friends and family of him trying to sort of scrape together the funds to be able to do this. And the book that he's written is highly critical of of his hometown as well. So it's about getting money to be paid to be critical of a mm-hmm. of a place, which is very you know has a sort of autobiographical element to it. I guess it's a talky film. There's lots of chat, lots of sort of philosophical discourse. It's all very funny and it's it's very dramatic. And you know, as a director, Jelan has always been someone who is you know he's got that kind of photographer's eye. He can capture these in- incredible landscapes and he can place the the kind of human characters and sort of, you know they they get lost in these in these very sort of lush terrains and uh, I think with this film and his previous one Winter Sleep he's become more of a kind of literary mm. director and he's, his focus is probably a bit more on the writing and the dialogue and, he, and the way he just sculpts words is just astounding I think and I mean Winter Sleep was, a, was for me a bit of a tough old slog very sort of self-serious this one is kind of lighter but somehow heavier bubbling under the whole thing is this amazing father-son relationship or it's you know there's a, the, the, every single relationship in the film between the son and and all the the various characters who he meets with is the, you know it, it's, it's just a super super rich film i think mm. and, and it uh, all comes together so well at the end as we said at the, t- at the yeah, time yeah i mean it's, as i say it's a long film and you're watching it and you are kind of wondering he doesn't do too much to sort of steer it in any kind of obvious plot direction mm-hmm. there's no real kind of three act structure to it but then when it does end, it just it just ends in the most perfect way in a kind of, well, obviously, you know. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, it's amazing. I absolutely loved it. And it shows up the variety of the list here. It's over twice as long as you and I really hear. It's over three hours. <laughs> That's a bumper movie. <laughs> so let's recap. Number 10, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Number 9, Burning. 8, You Never Really Here. And number 7, The Wild Pear Tree. You can go back through the archive and hear our reviews of some of those films. And coming up next, number 6. So number 6 in our top 10 of 2018. Hannah, I haven't seen this film yet. This was a (laughs) Toronto premiere. It played at London Film Festival. It's Barry Jenkins' If Beale Street Could Talk. Could you describe this one for us? Yeah, so this is adapted from a James Baldwin novel of the same name about a young couple in Harlem who are sort of wrought apart by a false rape accusation. And the film is about their struggle to be back together. So we have Tish, who is a 19-year-old African-American who lives in Harlem with her family and her boyfriend, uh, Alfonso, who they call Fonny, who is imprisoned. And it's a story of their kind of fight against the really unjust system, but also looking back on their relationship and kind of how it's weathered these storms that they faced as a couple. Um, It's just, I can't really... um, say enough about how beautiful this film is it is a love story but it's also 
a story about the kind of African-American experience and particularly the African-American experience in New York, which mm. is such a kind of um, microclimate within itself. And it's, you know, I mean, in 2019, I'm sure that we will be talking about this film a lot more, but it is incredibly beautiful. I mean, coming out of Moonlight, I think everyone had their eyes on Barry to see what you had next, what you had, what you had in him. Um, and this is like, if you don't, believe in Barry Jenkins being kind of one of the best directors working out there. This will confirm that he is. He No one shoots people like Barry. He's very confronting in his images. He will position someone in front of the camera and just have them look at you. And he, he said in interviews with this film, because a lot of people said, oh, it's very, I've not seen this before. I've not kind of been sat watching a film and someone will just be staring back at me. And he was saying about, well, for a lot of white people watching this film, it's probably the first time they've made eye contact with the black actors in this way. So he's someone that just puts so much thought and care and love into everything he does. And it's just absolutely magical, this film. It's, wow. it's heartbreaking, it's inspiring, and it, it's kind of maddening as well. that This film's made now about something that happened in the past, but it still feels incredibly relevant. Mm. And the name of the film comes from the Borden quote about Beale Street being the kind of home of every black American. And that still feels like it's the case with this film. He's pointing out that this this is a period piece in quotation marks, but it's the story of a, a more generalised experience. Wow, so we'll be hearing a lot more about if Beale Street could talk. Yeah, I don't think we'll shut up. I mean. <laughs> but for now, enough about Barry Jenkins. Let's go to David Jenkins for number five. This is Deborah Granick's Leave No Trace, a survivalist parental drama. Yeah. Wow. I get sort of teary-eyed just thinking about this one. Um, yeah, this was one of my personal faves of the year. I think I probably went to see it with, very, you know, not... not. I mean, I thought her previous fiction feature, Winter's Bone, was really good. It was the film that launched Jennifer Lawrence's career. And um, I was totally blown away by it. It just kind of grabbed me, like, very, very quickly and just didn't let go, to use the old cliche, I guess. Which we're using lots of cliches today. <laughs> using lots of kind of um, buzzword cliche kind of poster thing. quotes. Yeah, I know. But it's we're Christmas. allowed to for the it's top Christmas. ten countdown. It's Christmas. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's the story of a of a, a father and a daughter, a dynamic you don't see that much in in cinema. They are living on the fringes of society. They have got a little sort of hidden camp in a public park, and um, the film sort of drip feeds you context. So you kind of you have to wait and find out why exactly they're choosing to live like this, and um, someone spots them. And the the authorities kind of move them on, and you find out more about Ben Foster's character, and you got this new, extraordinary new actress called um, Thomasin McKenzie mm -hmm. as his daughter, and essentially throughout the film you find out why he's chosen to sort of bring up his daughter in this quite unique way, and it's just utterly heartbreaking. For me, it was a very kind of I think so much cinema at the moment is very cynical about people about their decisions about it has this kind of idea that, that in america empathy no longer exists you know like we're voting for trump we've you know we're, we're doing these things to self-preserve and harm others and this film kind of takes that question in a really interesting way it like looks at what self-preservation actually means but actually plays it off against this idea that 
people are naturally empathetic. If you are in need and they can see it, they will they will help you. And it doesn't do it in a kind of quite false sentimental way. The way Deborah Granick writes it, the way she directs the performers, it just for me felt so authentic. I guess some of my my comments about these films apply to all the films in the top ten <laughs> that they just the fundamentals about them they ha- they have great endings they have great performances there's you know there is meat uh, to, to the themes there is stuff that sticks with you they have like emotional heft and this one just had all of that um, you know Deborah Granick for me is just like phenomenal talent and mm. uh, you know absolutely hope that she's doing something very quick wow well that's leave no trace up next. Another great American independent movie, number four, is First Reformed. Paul Schrader, Ethan Hawke, wrestling with <laughs> matters of faith and the coming environmental apocalypse. Hannah, one you're rewatching every day? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, basically. I, I mean, God, I think I've seen this three times this year as well. Like, and that's since the summer. Mm-hmm. That's quite a lot for this film. What's, what's bringing you back? I'm a church kid. I, this was my childhood. Like, you know, I, I yeah, my dad was like a born again Christian. So, I'm getting personal here yeah. uh, on the pod, but yeah, it really kind of I understand. Did your dad wrap himself up in barbed wire? <laughs> that isn't something I'm willing to reveal on the podcast. Um, for me, this film speaks so much to kind of human anxieties on a on a micro level but also on kind of like a global level you know this whole film is about Ethan Hawke kind of realizing that climate change exists <laughs> and uh, even now after all this time I mean I've I think I did the podcast when we talked about this I think I mean I, I wrote the review I'm still kind of wrestling with what it is that I love about this film mm. Ethan Hawke gives this incredible performance I think a lot of people probably didn't think they had it in him to do something like this which is so different from kind of like the hey, yeah, I'm Ethan Hawke roles that he's like done in the past. And even this year, he's done like Great three impression. of those films yeah. like where he's playing this kind of very, very straight-laced, very pious preacher called Ernst Toller, which mm-hmm. is a great name. And he meets Amanda Seyfried's character, Mary, which is like the, the a very heavy-handed uh, biblical reference from Schrader there. And she asks for help with her husband, who's kind of jumped off the deep end and is... Uh, looking at doing something dangerous and bad things happen and he kind of has to wrestle with it. I think the themes are really interesting. It feels like Paul Schrader is just kind of like, ah, for like the, the duration of the film is just him like screaming into the void. Like It talks about kind of the monetization of religion and the idea that you can have faith but not want to practice it in a kind of formalized way. And it talks a lot about the way like, humans relate to each other. I think that Toller's a very difficult man and he doesn't seem to have a lot of emotions mm-hmm. <laughs> until they all kind of explode about halfway through the movie and he doesn't really know how to process them. But I think as well, it's just such a kind of weird movie and I really like how weird it gets. There's a whole like levitating <laughs> magical mystery tour moment which mm-hmm. kind of comes out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. The ending is like... Again, we talk about great endings. It's got a kind of incredible ending set to this uh, old hymn called like Leaning on the Everlasting Arms. <laughs> I think people talk a lot about films being relevant and timely, but this really does feel like the summation of Schrader's career. He's always wrestled with like religion and I know that he wanted to make silence and Martin Scorsese was like, no, I'm going to make silence. And this feels like him being like, okay, well, fine, I'm going to make my own movie. And... It all, it all really works for me. In an ideal world, this would be kind of going up for all the big awards, but I think it's just too weird. I think mm-hmm. the Academy's not ready for uh, Ethan Hawke 
drinking whiskey mixed with uh, Pepto-Bismol. I think that one of the things also that, I, that is amazing about this film is like, I mean, I can't remember what his last re- like truly great film was. I mean, he's made loads of really great films in in, in the seventies and eighties. Well, we discussed Light Sleeper on the podcast. Yeah, yeah film Light Sleeper, week, which was might be great. his last great one. I, yeah. I can't um, remember who it was that said like one of the poster quotes for this film, which makes me crack up every time I see it. It's like Schrader's best film for twenty five years. And I was like, why would you say that on the poster? <laughs> like, but it is true. It, it, you know, fair enough. I mean, I'm, su- I'm sure he probably <laughs> agrees with it. He still got it, baby. <laughs> I think as well, you can kind of trace the lineage from like Taxi Driver, mm-hmm. which he wrote to First Reformed. And what I really like about this as well is that it is all kind of like in his head. You know, you're getting these diary entries, which become increasingly more frantic and depressed until the point where he stops writing the diary. Mm-hmm. It feels so intimate and so private. And a lot of my friends actually like, I don't need to see a film about a white man struggling with his guilt. But I was like, no, it's about being a human and how we're all struggling with that. And I just... Yeah, I, I mean, Schrader himself is an incredibly problematic man, but this film is, yeah, I think it's it's a good Christmas movie, actually, you know? It's all about how capitalism's going to kill us all. And, you know, if that doesn't scream Christmas, I don't know what does. That's strong recommendation, Hannah. <laughs> While we're struggling with First Reformed, let's just take a break before we go to the podium. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey everyone, I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. So before we go for the top three, let's go through the top ten so far. Ten, The Miseducation of Cameron Post. Nine, Burning. Eight, You Were Never Really Here. Seven, The Wild Pear Tree. Six, If Beale Street Could Talk. Five, Leave No Trace. Four, First Reformed. Now we're going to the top three with a film we spoke about less than a week ago, really, David Jenkins. This is The House That Jack Built. But we've, you've spoken at length about this. So Hannah, are you a fan of Jack? I'm a big fan of Jack. There's been some debate online about... I keep talking about the internet. I'm sorry, everyone. It's where I get all my news. It's where we live. It's it's genuinely where I live. Um, It's where people are listening to this. Exactly. (laughs) There's been a lot of debate about this film. In fact, as recently as yesterday, I was talking to someone about this film, someone I don't really know, and they were like, oh, it's strange that you're a woman and you like this film. (laughs) Um, Because a lot of people think it's very misogynistic and it's... You know, there aren't a lot of women who like it. As, as a woman and a Lars von Trier fan, I can say that's not true. Some of us do like this movie. And I don't think it's particularly misogynistic because I don't think that 
I don't think that Jack sees women as human. I don't think he sees anyone as human. I don't think he relates to other human beings. And it's hard to be a misogynist when you just don't understand humanity as a concept. But anyway, I'm not going to mm. get into all that. I just think that as a film about making films, as a film about art, as a film about... We're all... That's it. You know, it's 2018. Trump's in the White House. We were talking... <laughs> David was saying earlier about um, films that are kind of hopelessly pessimistic. And I, that this is one of them. This is... A, it's nihilism, the movie. And uh, I'm here for it. I, uh, I think that Matt Dillon gives the kind of performance of a lifetime here. He does so many things in the space of two and a half hours. He goes from this kind of, like, glasses and suit wearing, like, oh... Uma Thurman shouting at me to Mr. Sophistication. And then it has, at the end, the greatest display of male hubris I've ever seen in a film where Jack does something that you're like, come on, this is a comedy. This has to be a comedy. And I interviewed Lars, and I think Lars sees it that way as well. He, you know, a lot of that seems to have been lost on the kind of the discourse, especially coming out of Cannes. A lot of people are like, this is outrageous. I can't believe he's done this. And I'm like, well, you know, I think everything is kind of meant to be taken with a pinch of salt in this film you're not meant to feel sorry for Jack <laughs> oh, Lars kind of thinks so much of himself that he's made himself a serial killer and he's like oh look at me aren't I evil and it's like it's not that at all really it's you know to me it's just like a straight up comedy and to make a comedy about a serial killer is like you know it's quite something straight up comedy that's not the take <laughs> I've read too widely Hannah I'm but, sorry everyone. but that's Lars von Trier spreading some seasonal cheer guaranteed to have a conversation around the Christmas table if you watch that <laughs> that's the house that Jack built in third place in second place another film we spoke about last week Roma David again we spoke about this at length but top line thoughts on Alfonso Cuaron's Roma which is now on Netflix everyone it's can okay. watch it you know it's, it's, it's fine, fine. <laughs> yeah <laughs> no it's it's as I said last week when I saw it I was just you know had that kind of thing where you sort of stagger out of the darkness of the cinema into the light and it has it has a kind of you know, celestial feel to it and you're kind of just dazed. It wasn't maybe something I was expecting for Corona. I, I thought it was going to be, you know, good, but maybe I was going to have some issues with it. But I don't know. I just think it's this, you know, incredible achievement. And it's, I think, the best, not the best, but a great version of a kind of personal project of someone wanting to channel personal feelings and memories and history and... It's an attempt to take images in the mind and put them onto celluloid, which I think is something very, you know, at the very essence of what some of the great directors do, like going back to people like Fellini and Tarkovsky mm -hmm. and people like that. Yeah, I mean, it's the story of Quaron's maid. Mm -hmm. He's kind of looking through her eyes. I think there's been some interesting writing about this idea of him almost placing himself in her position and the sort of moral imperatives about that. I think that you know cinema is a poetic medium and we do have to kind of place ourselves in the shoes of other people as a matter of course uh, you know it's it's essential to to storytelling and and the medium itself i think that you know obviously there are kind of responsibilities that come with that and i think you know what quaron does in this film he does in a very delicate nuanced careful uh and reverent way mm -hmm. um it's set in the 70s and it tells the year in the life of his maid mm -hmm. uh, during there are, there are kind of riots in the background there is there are children running around there's new life there's life lost on paper it's not very dramatic the actual events of the film are quite kind of intimate but I think what Quaron does is make them feel like 
earth shattering like as you and I would experience something you know that's relatively quite small and and actually it, for it to be the thing that is the most meaningful event of our lives he makes these kind of you know very very sort of evanescent moments feel just like spectacular yeah it's on Netflix at the moment as mm-hmm. everyone probably knows mm-hmm. and uh, there's much debate about where to watch it and there's, how to watch it they've released an advisory note about how, how to, to set watch up it on your t- TV mm-hmm. and audio equipment to get the most out of your Netflix viewing experience it's, it's quite a read Tom Cruise there yeah. so um, <laughs> it's interesting because you know on one side you have this great case for, for personal cinema mm-hmm. of, of giving money to artists and letting them have that freedom to do what they want to do and on the other you've got this kind of is this the last nail in the coffin for the cinema showcase the <laughs> let's all go down to the pictures on a Friday night and have a good time it's uh, funny I was reading a study that came out this week about how Netflix isn't killing the cinemas so doing pretty well, I think. What, what is the truth the people who watch Netflix <laughs> are actually more likely to go and see it in the cinema and go and see it on Netflix and uh Koran has said like nobody else wanted to pay for this project and Scorsese said the same thing about The Irishman which is Netflix next year you know they're the ones that are kind of bankrolling these filmmakers mm-hmm. so I'm know. surprised about The Irishman I'm, that just strikes me as a kind of like almost in a similar vein as like something like Mary Poppins Returns from what I've read about it it does seem like a kind of there is going to be a big no- Scorsese nostalgia element to it what with him reteaming with De Niro and, mm-hmm. Pesci, and Pesci, and, and you know. Pesci back out retirement. Yeah, that's yeah. what I'm saying. What did he, and having heard Scorsese quite recently talk about how hard it is to get Joe Pesci to be in a film, even in the eighties, it was hard to get him to make films. So funny, you know, yeah. he, he very quietly retired. It's interesting. Yeah, I, well, it's like he never I, went away. as a little aside, when I was in Marrakesh, he, Scorsese was talking about uh, making Goodfellas and. The fact that Pesci had retired by that point and didn't want to be in the movie. He was like, no, I've retired. I'm not going to make another movie. And then Scorsese was like, well, fine, I'll let you do whatever you want. Just be in the movie. So the whole funny like a clown thing was because Hmm. Joe Pesci was like, oh, I have this good story. Like, do you think we could really put it in the movie? And he was like, are you kidding? Of course, this has got to be in the film. So... 2019, Year of the Pesci. Year of the Irishman. (laughs) We'll have to revisit that when that finally comes out. So that was Roma, number two. So before we unveil... First place, let's go back through that top ten. The Miseducation of Cameron Post, number ten. Number nine, Burning. Number eight, You Are Never Really Here. Number seven, The Wild Pear Tree. Number six, If Beale Street Could Talk. Five, Leave No Trace. Four, First Performed. Three, The House That Jack Built. Number two, Roma. And in first place, it is Zama. David, what is Zama? (laughs) What is Zama, indeed? It's a film by Lucretia Martel. Mm -hmm. Hopefully, some of our loyal listeners mm. will have heard heard us on the podcast when we were talking, rhapsodizing about it way back when. And, you know, hopefully some people will be listening to this and this film may have uh, passed them by mm-hmm. and they will go out and discover or rediscover it. She is, again, one of the greats. <laughs> she doesn't make films very often. So it's, you know, when, when, when one does come along, we have to, we have to cherish it and... Uh, uh, and I'm not just saying that as a, as a kind of as a sense of duty, but this film is completely wonderful. And um, I think where someone like Quaron is and a film like Roma is very it harks back to the history of cinema. It feels like a kind of classic that it has a sort of classicism to it, I guess. A film like Zama is more forward looking. It's more it's more like let's look at what the medium can do. Let's imagine that there weren't any rules and that we can make them up as we go along. It's not an experimental film, but it is a tough film in terms of the way its story is told. The music, the mm-hmm. actors, the mm-hmm. 
You know, there there is a serious scene between two of the key actors in which a llama <laughs> just sort of wanders into shot, looks at the camera and then wanders <laughs> off again. And the actors somehow, you'd expect them to be creasing up or, mm. or acknowledging it, but they're, just, they're, they're so in, enraptured in this conversation they're having that the llama sort of just goes by unnoticed. That's a uh, single scene performance of the year from that llama. I mean, it's, oh, a, yeah. it's a great animal performance. Uh, it's a kind of strange tale based on a very famous Argentine novel called Zama. And it's about a kind of diplomatic envoy in this kind of nowheresville in the sort of southern reaches of Argentina who's left his family to do this important job. And he's essentially like bored as hell <laughs> and he wants to go back to his family. And he spends most of his time like spying on women. And he, he, he has this very kind of pent up desire to have an affair, mm. to basically canoodle with 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 all these women but then he there's this kind of very righteous moral obligation to his family to his country which he's which is kind of wrestling it within his head essentially in this existential nightmare um <laughs> it's a lot like kind of a film like brazil or 1984 i guess where it's just a guy he's like a pinball bit trapped in this system just getting flipped around and you're kind of following his crazy journey as he's kind of pushed to these weird extremes by this system that just doesn't seem to have any obvious logical rules to it i mean you know it's set in this in the 17th century i think and uh, it all applies to now you know <laughs> it's it's a very relevant film but in a very in a quite an obscure way for me i just felt this this was a kind of magical experience i just had this kind of every single shot this is in the realms of perfection there's just so much thought gone into every single frame that amazing it's a wonderful movie isn't it and as we now know, it's the movie that put Lucretia Martel on the Marvel Studios <laughs> radar. She was brought in for it to have a chat. No. Yeah, yeah. Did Black, you not see this? Read, read about the, about, she was going to do the Black Widow movie. And then so they, they said to her... They went in for a call in for a meeting, yeah. They said to her, well, we'll let you do all the character stuff, but we need a man to do... Or we'll, we'll, we'll in, handle the In other words, we'll, we're going to get yeah. a man to do all the action scenes. And she was like, no, that's not how it works. She'd want to do the fight scenes herself if she was yeah. going to take on a film like that. She's so cool. She's always pictured wearing big glasses and a cigar. Massive cigar. Yeah. <laughs> and she gave a great soundbite about someone... I think someone was interviewing her and was like, oh, yeah, I, I nearly fell asleep in, in your film... And she was like, great, I'm, I'm happy about that because it means you're comfortable. Like, if you fall asleep in a film, then you obviously feel comfortable enough that you, you know, that you're, you're going to take a nap. Great. And she was like, I fall asleep in films all the time. <laughs> she's just, yeah, she's so cool. Well, that's Zama, The Little White Lies, film of the year. We do have a couple of minutes. Should we just quickly highlight one film that wasn't in this top ten? There's uh, one of our personal favourites. Do you have one that comes to mind, Hannah? Yeah, Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse. Oh, I agree. Completely. <laughs> I, so I was so hyped for Try this film. Try and sell this to me. I have no okay. interest in seeing this film. So if, if, you, if you guys can make me want to see it over Christmas. So, okay, so... Elevator pitch. I, as an as a, as a intro to this, <clears throat> David Ehrlich, friend of the pod, hates Marvel films. Like, quite vehemently hates them. And he gave this a, like a, a glowing review. And I couldn't think of anyone who I was more surprised to hear like this film. Mm -hmm. But anyway, yeah, so it's kind of um, Sony righting the wrongs of Venom with mm. this uh, animated film about Miles Morales, who's kind of a Spider-Man from a different dimension mm -hmm. than uh, the, the Peter Parker one. And this film kind of sees him at the very beginnings of his, uh, his journey to being Spider-Man. And he's 
unwittingly thrust into this kind of situation where all these spider men's and women's <laughs> come into his um, dimension. And it's about how they kind of fix that problem, but also how he kind of adapts to this new life. And I was really surprised that it manages to fit so much into what is supposed to kind of be a kid's movie, I guess. Mm. It's got this great dynamic between Miles and his dad, who's played by MVP of 2018, Brian Tyree Henry. It's got a lot about kind of race. Like Miles Mm. Miles is black, but he's half Cuban. And this in the film is kind of like, he goes to a, a private school and has to kind of like readjust himself to fit in with the kind of the kids there. But also... There's these great shots of him just hanging out in his neighbourhood, talking Spanish and just living his life. And it's nice to see a city that is so through someone's eyes like that. You know, it's not a perspective that I think we see a lot in cinema, particularly in blockbuster superhero cinema. It just feels like this is, I mean, this is Lord and Miller who did a Lego movie and we're going to do Solo. And I'm so glad they did this rather than doing Solo because it feels so special it feels like something that we've been waiting for i think from superhero movies and we've not had in maybe ever and then of course getting past all the kind of plot and character stuff it just looks incredible Mm -hmm. it is just like watching a comic brought to life there's so much kind of joy and just let's just do this because it's a spider-man movie and we can get away with it and it's you know it's an absolute trip. I was delighted for two hours. I cried three times. This, this is, you know... It's all the emotions, David. <laughs> all the emotions, okay. if, if, you, if you take one recommendation from us, go and see this movie. <laughs> okay. We'd love to know what you think. And but, truly great voice casting as well. I've mm-hmm. said Brian Tyree Henry. Catherine um, Hahn is in this movie. Catherine and she's Hahn. fantastic without spoiling anything. Oh, God, who plays um, Kingpin? Uh, that is Live Schreiber. Live Schreiber. And Aunt May in this universe is Lily Tomlin. Haley Steinfeld. Okay. Oscar if, Isaac. If Tomlin's in, then, I, then I'm in. And it also features one of, Tomlin. Yeah. one of the greatest end credit scenes. Like, if you hate end credit scenes, then the, the one in this is, like, totally worth it. If you love Spider-Man it's... and memes, as I think you do have. <laughs> That's my beat, Spider-Man and memes. David, but... you very quickly have a film that you'd recommend on top of this top ten. Yeah, this is a kind of... Can you call it a film? It's. I'm actually <laughs> going to recommend a TV show by a film director, which was one of the best things I saw this year, called The Little Drummer Girl, which was a uh, Park Chan-wook-directed version of the John le Carre novel in six-hour-long parts astonishingly made it onto the BBC One uh, kind of in a primetime slot. I mean, I was a massive fan of the um, Alec Guinness Le Carre's from, mm. from the 70s and 80s, the um, Tinker Taylor and Smiley's People. And what Park Chan-wook has managed to do is make a TV show that is absolutely connected to those in, in the way that... I mean, Le Carre, there's a kind of glumness and a boredom to the whole kind of bureaucratic element of being a spy in his books and I think this new version captures an element of that it's really detailed it's really complex I think some people I've spoken to about it maybe think it's there was too much going on and as a tv serial you need it needs to have more kind of you know that almost like internal recapping devices so you're kind of you're reminded of who that character is or why we're in this location or who why this person's doing this thing but this has none of that. You're plunged into this world, and that's very much a kind of reflection of what happens to the character. So the lead character is Florence Pugh, the actress Florence Pugh. She is a superstar. Uh, I was excited to see the new Greta Gerwig version of Little Women, mm. and now I'm doubly excited now I've noticed that she's in the lead role. So I loved it. It's very Hitchcockian. <laughs> a nice Christmas. I play a box set. Yes, <clears throat> yes, yes. Binge it. 
while you're binging on your turkey sandwiches. Indeed. <laughs> well, that brings us to, to the close of this uh, bumper Christmas Radio Times edition of Little White Lies, of Truth and Movies. What's happening next year? It seems like 2019 is so far away, yet it's only two weeks. Yeah. Uh, the first episode of the year is going to be Welcome to Marwen and Yorgos Lanthimos's The Favourite. Uh, two films that may be factoring in the Oscar conversation next year. We'll have to wait and see. Favourite, certainly, I think. Do you think Marwin, so, Anna? But yeah, I don't know. Putting money that. on Marwin. We, we will wait and see how Marwin is. But the favourite, I think, I'd be very surprised if there aren't some best actress noms flying that way. Maybe in the break, people should go and watch the documentary that Marwin is based on. It's oh, yeah, Marwin fantastic Cole. film. Fantastic yeah, really, really good documentary. Yeah. But that just leaves us time to say Merry Christmas, everyone. Thank you for listening. David and Hannah, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. I have been Michael Leader, and as always, this has been a 7 Digital production. Subtle results, still you, but with fewer lines. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia Gravis or Lambert-Eden syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com.